In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today is the prelate's birthday, the father, born in exile in 1944, which would make him today 78 years old. When we see his humor when he arrives today in Mexico for a long pastoral trip, we can see that he's still young in spirit saw some pictures this very morning, a little video of him arriving there at the airport with little children with huge Mexican sombreros and people playing the guitar, bienvenido, and he was very happy where he will spend a few days, I'm not exactly sure how long he will spend there in Mexico, no doubt meeting many people. But we know since 2016, he has been the father, elected by the Electoral Congress after the death of Javier Chiverilla, Don Javier. At that time, they invoked the Holy Spirit. They asked for the light of the Holy Spirit, and they made that choice. Perhaps at that time, they might have thought that well, the one who is becoming prelate will also become bishop. Perhaps they thought it was a fait accompli. But we know it didn't happen. He didn't become bishop. But he certainly is still very much father. We know that since Pope Francis's motu proprio ad carisma teundem, published on July 14th, 2022, but made effective in August of 2022, that the option of the father becoming a bishop is no longer on the table, and that in turn was the conclusion of the Apostolic Constitution Predicate Evangelium from March 19th, 2022, which reforms the entire structure of the Roman Curia in order to better promote its service in favor of evangelization. The general theme was that the Curia was not there simply as an occasion for career aggrandizement or special privileges or powers, but really the entire focus must be evangelization, the growth of the apostle, the growth of the church in the world. And that's a beautiful prism through which to see the service in the Curia, because anybody who works in a Curia that I have heard of has always described it as a very demanding task. There are a lot of files, there are a lot of difficult files, 
is very demanding and the people who work there go quite unseen. Nobody, nobody really experiences anything that might be even remotely related to human glory. And the whole purpose of those people working in the Curia and indeed the whole organization of it, the way it's structured, its whole purpose is in the service of the church, especially for evangelization. Now we know that the Pope's modo proprio, in particular, the one related to Opus Dei at Charisma Teundem, was written in order to protect our charism and to promote precisely our evangelizing action. That is to help us to do more apostolate according to our spirit, the way our Father wanted us to do it. And, well, one of the expressions of that will be this report that the Father will have to submit every year to the Holy See, where the congregation of the clergy will be able to see the, the extent of our apostolates, the number of people who will have whistled, who will, who will have joined the work, numeraries, supernumeraries, priests in the priest society, they will see all the initiatives we'll have had. Of course, they will also see the number of priests that will be ordained every year. They will see whether there are 30 priests, 40 priests, 50 priests. So that means that uh, the Pope wants to see a form of governments based on our charism rather than on a hierarchical authority needed for that charism. He's emphasizing charism over hierarchy. Perhaps we could say, well, being a bishop might make it easier for the father to ordain priests, and I suppose that's true. He just has to do it himself. Now he has to find somebody else. But that's not, a, not such a big deal. I mean, so what? He just says, hey, you, can you, uh, you got a moment to, here, ordain these sons of mine. And, I mean, there are many, many, many bishops available to do that. But perhaps the fact that he is a bishop, though it allows him to exercise his functions, doesn't necessarily, per se, help him to protect the charism as such. That's, I suppose, the understanding. I mean, naturally, when Don Alvaro was made a bishop, I was in Rome at the time, and there was not quite a doubt, but there was a, a bit of apprehension as to, well, I guess he's still the father. We don't say now, your grace, you know, he was, he was now bishop. And okay, do we, do, we, do, do we deal with him in any other way? Well, we knew that wasn't the case. But the fact that there was a bit of apprehension, we had to sort of maneuver things around that is, is an indication that the fact that he is bishop kind of may put a different rapport with us. Of course, for the father to be a bishop or for the prelate to be a bishop perhaps improves his relationship with other bishops. In other words, he's on the same level as them and, uh, and the rest of the church, but perhaps there was a danger that we might lose a sense that he was truly father.
Instead, we imagine him simply as a bishop. We pray that that never happens. That is, that we never lose a sense that he is Father. And that's, that's what um, the Father wrote precisely after the motu proprio, referring to Don Javier and referring to Don Alvaro. He says, we give thanks to God for the fruits of ecclesial communion that the episcopacy sees of Blessed Alvaro and Don Javier have brought about. At the same time, the episcopal ordination of the prelate was not and is not necessary for the guidance of Opus Dei. The Pope's desire to highlight the charismatic dimension of the work now invites us to reinforce the family atmosphere of affection and trust. The prelate must be a guide, but above all, a father. It's a, it's a beautiful line. Right? The prelate must be a guide, but above all, like most important, is that he be father. That he be a father. But if you just, it's funny, you just take out that a, that he be father. It already uh, underlines to us his role. And it's interesting, I, I read recently a, a survey that was done in the U.S., a long-standing survey where they did a massive sort of survey and a questionnaire to all priests in the U.S., kind of asking them whether they were happy with their vocation, whether they liked being priests, and, and there were elements about their relationship with the bishop. And it's interesting, they also, I mean, the vast majority, the hugest percentage said they were super happy with their vocation. You read that and you go, yes, oh, that's great. And then the negative things, well, they didn't always particularly like their bishops. No. <laughs> you know, imagine that. They said, well, I don't know what percent, I don't remember the percentages, but they, a large percentage didn't consider their bishops as fathers. Now, there are many reasons for that, I suppose, and some of them did consider the bishop uh, the father, like the, a pastor, somebody they could confide in, but a large percentage said no. And naturally, that was presented as a problem. It was a problem. And uh, because the bishop has so many responsibilities, he, he doesn't only deal with his bishops, uh, his, his priests themselves, but he, I mean, there are financial issues he has to deal with, the closing of churches, and these are all very important and uh, difficult decisions he has to make. And he has the authority to make those decisions. And very many priests felt somehow secondary that they weren't the, you know, they weren't really important, if you like, to the, to the bishop, and he didn't really have a relationship of a father to them. Of course, it's interesting that the prelate still has all the authorities. He can still give letter, demissorial letters. That is, he can, he can still decide who becomes a priest, who doesn't become a priest. And that's the decision always of a bishop. A bishop decides that kind of thing. He has the authority to decide that kind of thing on the council of the seminary. That's exactly what the father does. It's not a bishop who decides so-and-so can be a, a priest. It's the father who decides that. And then you just entrust that sacramental task to a bishop. I mean, it's the most important thing, but the same way, it's also the least important thing. Because it's the prelate who decides. This guy is going to be a priest. 
and same thing with the fidelity and all the things that pertain to to lay people. So, if you read the modo proprio, it says now that for us the official status of the prelate is that he is father, and the title that he has been given in the church is supernumerary apostolic protonotary. What? He's a supernumerary apostolic protonotary. And everybody says, oh yeah, we don't perfectly well that, what that is. Oh yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah. Like, unfortunately, I really had to look this up. Like, what is a supernumerary apostolic protonotary? No. I mean, Father, everybody says, oh, he's the Father. Okay, yeah. But that, forget it. Okay, so I don't say this because I know it. I say this because I looked it up. <laughs> And it's in Wikipedia. So, it's basically the highest non-episcopal college of prelates in the Roman Curia. Outside of Rome. So, supposedly, it's an honorary prelate on whom the Pope has conferred this title. And it apparently has special privileges. And then there's like a thick paragraph about what he can wear, what he can't wear. It's like, who cares, you know, but... You know, piping, red piping. Oh, he can wear red piping on his cassock with a red sash. And so, well, these are little details that people get really interested in. And uh, it seems that Pius X had organized the Curia, and he's the guy who invented it. And then in 1969, Pope Paul VI reduced it, uh, reduced the number. And uh, anyway, it's. I don't want to bore you with all the details, but. Uh, that's what an apostolic protonory supernumerary is. So he's named by the Pope, and he doesn't specifically have duties in the Curia. And this uh, title will no longer be bestowed by the Pope as of 2014. So that the Pope no longer bestows that title, except, except in the case of the ordinaries of the three personal ordinaries, like the Anglican ordinariate, like the military ordinariate, and there's another ordinariate, which I don't know, and, of course, personal prelatures. So, he is at the same level as military ordinariate, as Anglican ordinariates, and whatever the other one is. And uh, because Anglican ordinariates, well, they're not bishops. They, if they're married, they can't be bishops. So, instead, they are these protonori guys. So, so the, the end uh, result is that he is a monsignor, which he was anyway. So, big deal, right? But, uh, of course, we don't call him monsignor. We call him father. And uh, maybe now this is kind of, with his birthday now, it's kind of underlined more. And what is important is not the authority or the titles or the type of piping that he can wear on his cassock, mm -hmm. but that we might have in the church now a father, and, and also that many others might feel closer to the work. Mm -hmm. Because in our vocation, we are headed by the Father, and we should have a closeness to, to him. We should feel with great ease that we'd be able to write to him, and we can tell him 
our struggles, we can tell him our apostolic uh, endeavors, the initiatives we've had, the people we've gotten to know. Because when we say we call him Father, it's because we are part of a family, a supernatural family, just as the Church is part of a supernatural family. And we say that about the Church, the Church is, is a family. Yes, it's true, it's true. But what seems to dominate in the Church, just on a kind of psychological level, is, is the, the, the hierarchical dimension. That's why we have monsignors, that's why we have bishops, that why we have protonories, supernumeraries, or whatever they're called. And uh, that, that title doesn't seem to underline the fact that we are a family in the church, in the church. And uh, that we call him Father is an invitation for us to give thanks for the fact that God has called us to a small little family in the church, which is a bigger family. And if we have a father, that means that we are truly sons and daughters. Sons and daughters in this supernatural family. And it is a supernatural family with supernatural ties. And the supernatural ties have to do with our divine vocation. There's something common with us, and that is the common supernatural vocation that we have received. And in this family we have friends that are not our brothers and sisters, strictly speaking, but more in a wider sense. The cooperators, the friends, St. Raphael girls, they're sort of brothers and sisters as anybody would be in the world or in the church, but they're not exactly in our family. And when we have the Father, that kind of reinforces that. You may have heard that story that is told by Patrick Madrid, this Catholic um, apologetics guy who's written many books about the faith, and he, would, he had been a, a Protestant earlier, and then he started writing all these books after he converted. But he writes about meeting the father when he was younger, meeting the father of his girlfriend. And he was dating this girl, and this man, the father of his girlfriend, was a Protestant, kind of a pretty staunch Protestant, and he had now become Catholic, Patrick Madrid, and so the Protestant wanted to kind of test him, and to test him he said, well, I hear that Catholics like to call their priests father, <laughs> and what we know that our, father, uh, our Lord said, you shall not call anybody on earth father. You only have one father, God the Father. So he was like testing them. You know, like, what do you say to that? You know? So, uh, well, he said, look, dude, I mean, our Lord didn't mean that literally. He said, because, um, he said, if I were to ask you to this Protestant guy, if I were to ask you to write down, right now on this paper, your father's name, would you write God? I don't think you would write God. You would write whatever your father's name is. Because the name Father, he said, can be applied to many realities. Biological realities. Spiritual realities. There's a father of a nation. There's the Holy Father. And priests are fathers. Now, 
course, in the work, priests are father. We, we, I mean, I think you call me father, right? That's what usually what you do, right? But uh, so, and it's it's always lovely when you're walking on the street. There's a construction worker passes by. Hi, father. <laughs> Hi, father. <laughs> It's all, I don't know this guy from Adam, you know, but, hi, Father. It's as though we know each other. I don't say, hi, worker, or whatever, but uh, we're part of the same family, you know, part of the same family. And, uh, but in the work we have the Father, Padre, we call him. And, uh, of course, all those fathers, all those types of fathers, whether they be a logical, spiritual Holy Father, they all ultimately depend, of course, on the fatherhood of God. Because God is the Father. God, God is the Father Almighty. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you remember that story about a guy who was in the work and he was talking, I think he was talking to, to Don Alvaro, I think. And he was saying, oh yeah, that thing happened in the times of our father. He's, that's the expression he used. And uh, our, Don Alvaro said, we, it's always the times of our father. Meaning that the father, there's the fatherhood of God, there's our father, we always call him our father. We don't call him Monsignor Escriba. Say he's our father. So it's that that aspect of the spirit of the fatherhood of our father continues. And I was reading this new book by Jose Luis Gonzalez Guyon and John Coverdale. It's called The History of Opus Dei. Uh, it, the new the new sort of edition has just been published in English, and I highly recommend it. And it's in two volumes: the English, as far as, far as I know, the Spanish is in one volume. But it's called The History of Opus Dei, and it's, it just goes in great, not in great detail, but just a general um, overview of the history. And in chapter 2, we read that in 1934, our father had nine women that had joined Opus Dei. And for a few months, he would meet with them, he would explain the spirit of the Opus Dei, and they, well, they whistled as uh, numerous. They wanted to become numerous. So he had nine women there. And, um, but... When they went and told their families that they would, they would, that they would live apostolic celibacy, their families freaked out. And they, they, they said, you know, because those days, the only women who would wear, live uh, apostolic celibacy were nuns or, you know, religious, uh, you know. So it was just it was not in the culture. It was just not understood. So, so he, had to, he basically had to let them go, you know, because uh, it was just not, just not understood. And so he decided to concentrate more on the men. That was somehow something culturally and, and socially that was more acceptable. And during that time, he's, it says, so this is the early 30s, his sense of paternity started to grow. And it seems that on March 11th, 1934, he told the members of the work that he would prefer to be called Father rather than Don Jose Maria. All priests would be called Don, Don Fulanito, you know, Don whatever your name is. And, and uh, because the termed father defined his mission in Opus Dei. And he also at that point, of course, underlined with them 
or ask them to be very concerned about each other, to show affection to each other, because he wanted them all to feel that they were part of a Christian family, and that this would be an essential characteristic of the spirit of Opus Dei. See, right there, he articulated exactly why we call the prelate father and why we are in a supernatural family. That was 1934, March 11th, and it just stuck, and everybody just called him from that moment on, father. Now, I, don't, I can't measure really how, if that was different from the way other people, like how people would address a priest in those days. If everybody had dressed a priest as Don or what, whatever, but I don't know how it was. Here, everybody addresses the priest as father. But, but now, this is the mission of the prelate. It is to be father. It is not to be a bishop or to have hierarchical authority in the church itself. Because our father had received this charism. And it was about sanctifying work, about lay mentality. It was about being part of a family. It was about putting love in little things. It was about doing apostles in the middle of the world. It was about being leaven in the middle of the world. And all that, in some way, was assured by having a father. We don't like... It, when people say, are you part of that group there, uh, Obus Dei? Are you part of that movement, Obus Dei? Are you part of that association? We all kind of cringe, especially when they say, oh, you're part of the, in your order, do they, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, we just like, ah! We cringe, you know? And we know that people are well-intended, they don't mean any, uh, you know, any, any harm, obviously, you know? But when they say that, it doesn't seem to safeguard what, we, what is such an essential part of who we are and our identity. And that is that we are a family in the, in the, in the church. And we have a father. And we are, son, we are sons and daughters of the father and brothers and sisters. And, okay, the closest thing that would safeguard that is the prelature. The prelature. I suppose, I guess, if you were a canonical expert, you'd say, oh, you could also be an ordinariate. Yeah, whatever. But we're a prelature, and we're a supernatural family with supernatural bonds. And so we have our own charism, our personal style, and uh, it's a family. I mean, a religious order is also a family, but it's a separate thing. It's it includes public vows, and it is recognized in the church as a dedication that is quite separate from the world. It's not lay. It's not secular. It's, it has a religious mentality. And God loved them. They're doing very many good things. We love the religious. And we want them to, to thrive and to grow. And they are obviously a fundamental aspect of the church, and they're a beautiful family in the church. We must pray for the religious. It's unfortunate we don't see them like publicly in the world, but they're around. They have the, it's normal we don't see them because they're not really in the world. In fact, if we don't see them, doesn't mean they don't exist, of course. And so, you know, I was reading over the Constitution, Utsit, the Apostolic Constitution that established Opus Dei as a personal prelature by Pope John Paul II, and it it mentions that it was the sacred congregation of bishops that was asked for this establishment. 
and that that was considered the competent congregation at the time. And, well, actually, if you go to the Utsit right now, they've already edited it, right? There's like a, like, you know, the numbers have number, they have an extra number, including the changes that Pope Francis made. But at that time in Utsit, it mentions that uh, Don Alvaro is, is president general and will be the first prelate. And now, of course, it's added, and plus he should not be bishop. But, but all this edited version now is a result of Predicate Evangelium, and the prelature depends now on the congregation of the clergy. Okay, fine. Congregation of the clergy. And uh, hopefully they will see that we're not just a bunch of priests with some very, very good helpers. Right? Uh, maybe they will see that we have more than just helpers or you know that we're the ones who are running things but and the, the lay people are there to help us in some way and because we'll have to talk when we talk about vocations we'll have to talk about uh, the vocations of lay people as well not just priests but all this takes time you know the church started as a group of 12 mem- you know disciples it was like a mustard seed you know eventually becomes a large, really beautiful, big tree with deep roots. That's what our Lord said. It's, it's a mustard seed that starts small, tiny, but it will grow. As Tertullian said, we are of yesterday, and yet we are everywhere. And that's ultimately what we want to pray, that this indeed, this change that the Holy Father has wanted, does indeed make us be everywhere, that it makes us really take an important role in the evangelization of, of the world, that, that in some way or another, since our charism will be protected, that more and more people will come in contact, that the apostles will grow, and, uh, and we'll be able to contribute to the evangelization of the world. That's what we really want. And so today, in particular, we pray for the Father, now in Mexico, that that trip also have many fruits and that the new changes to the to the statutes also be well established and everybody can make their contribution there to the whatever changes they think should be done so that we will always have that foundational truth that we will be a supernatural family serving this supernatural institution which is the church the church of god I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.